The first thing you should know about my mom is that she loves fashion. This was her career. She ended up uh, becoming a, eventually a designer sportswear buyer for a family-owned department store down in Texas. But if you know me at all, you know fashion is not my thing. I am pretty basic and straightforward. But in, when I was in high school, my mom gave me a gift from one of her overseas trips. Um, it was a designer leather purse. You know, it's one of those designers where the logo is all over the outside, so it is super clear exactly what that bag is. Well, it was her hope that whenever I would use this purse, that I would remember her and her great love for me, and that people everywhere who would see me would say, what a cool fashion-forward mom she has. But I thanked her, I wrapped the bag in tissue paper, and I put it in my dresser drawer. I took it with me to college, and even after college, I thought it looked pretty professional, so maybe I'll take it with me to New York City. And then when I moved to Minnesota, I still wrapped in tissue paper, put it at the top shelf of my closet. You see, I knew this was an important gift that my mom had given me. It meant a lot to her, but to me, I wasn't quite sure of its value. It didn't feel like it fit me. I wasn't comfortable with it, and I wasn't comfortable with what others might think if I were to wear this and to show this. Sometimes we receive a gift and we really don't understand what the value is. We may put it behind glass and look at it, and if we think it's too precious to really use or to be part of our lives, or on the other side, if we really don't think it's useful to us, we might toss it in that donation box and pass it on to someone else who really might see its value a little bit better. Or we might put it in the closet until we have time to figure out what to do with it. Friends, we have been given a great and precious gift by God, and he means for us to appreciate it and to use it, and that gift is mercy. In the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 that we've been looking at, the first four describe our relationship to God. And following the following four that we're about to get into in these next four weeks are more about our relationships to others. These first four that we have looked at describe the inner spiritual condition of the life of a person who can find their happiness and their blessing in a life with God. And these next four Beatitudes, some call them the active Beatitudes or the serving Beatitudes, because these next four are the ones that are meant to be lived out in community. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Theologian John Stott wrote, to show mercy and to receive mercy are indissolubly bound together. So as we unpack these 10 words today, we'll see that Jesus embodied God's eternal and infinite mercy. And through the exercise of mercy to others, we become more like Jesus. Pray with me as we continue. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of mercy. And I pray that today, as we study your word, that you will help us to understand the value of this gift you have given us. And you will show us specifically how we can exercise mercy to bring about your kingdom in this world. Amen. So let's start with a definition of mercy, since this verse tells us that we are to show mercy and that we have received mercy. So we'll start with the dictionary. The dictionary offers this definition. To have compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it's within one's own power to punish or harm. So showing compassion or forgiveness to someone else whom we have some degree of power over. 
In light of the first four Beatitudes, it, this really continues the trajectory that we have seen. When we started out looking at the people, that person who is poor in spirit, who recognizes their brokenness, who mourns over that condition of sin, who then realizes that they within themselves don't have the power to change or make things any better, but instead hungering and thirsting after righteousness, turn to God, who in turn shows them mercy. But you may think, well, this sounds a lot like grace, right? Isn't grace the unforgived merit or unmerited favor of God? Grace and mercy, is, is there a difference between the two? There absolutely is. If you look at the epistles uh, that are written in the New Testament, often they start with a salutation of grace and peace to you, or others start with grace, mercy, and peace to you. The epistle writers said no, knew there was a difference between grace and mercy, and so put them side by side. So let's give some working definitions here, both of justice as well as grace and mercy. So justice, let's say, is getting what you deserve. When we go to the courts, we are looking for justice. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting better than you deserve. So an illustration here to kind of bring this point a little more clearly. So say there's this book that you really want to read, but, you know, money is tight, and you just do not have the money to uh, go out and buy it, and you went to the library, and there is a waiting list of 150 people. So you really want to read this book, and you realize your best friend owns that book, and they graciously agree to lend it to you. You're so excited. You sit down with your drink. You've got your afternoon blocked off. You are ready to read this book, and you start reading it, and a couple of hours into the story, you spill your drink all over this book, and now there is this brown, sticky liquid that is soaked through the pages. The book is ruined. So justice would say, you need to scrape together your money, forego some of those things that you were going to do, and go out to the store and buy your friend a new book. You ruined the book. You need to replace the book. Mercy would be, your friend hears this story and calls you and says, you know, you don't need to buy me a book. I already read it. It's okay. That's mercy. Grace would be your friend hears the story and shows up at your house with a new copy of the book and said, I went out to the store and I bought a new copy. I knew you didn't finish it, but it's an awesome book and I want you to get to the end of it. Justice, you got to buy your own book. Mercy, you don't have to buy a book at all. Grace, you get a second chance, a second book. The biblical definition of mercy, though, extends beyond this popular definition of just not getting what you deserve. The Hebrew word is hesed, and it appears over 150 times in the Old Testament, mostly being translated as mercy, but also being translated as kindness, steadfastness, love, loving kindness, and fidelity. It is a big picture of the character of God. It's not just the absence of punishment, but it's an po active provision of a positive benefit for the person that you're caring about, the person in need. Over 90% of the uses of hesed in the Old Testament refer to God himself or to an action of God. Merciful is an adjective applied to God himself. And if we can be merciful at all, it's only because we have that little piece of God's mercy living within us. 
You see, mercy is a part of God's character. Some may say that they don't like the Old Testament God because he's too vengeful and angry and wrathful. I like the New Testament God because he's loving and kind and forgiving. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we look today at the scriptures, we are going to see that both God's mercy and his justice are woven together throughout the Old and New Testament. The mercy of God is demonstrated throughout history. From the provision of food for Jacob's sons who were living in a land of famine after they had left their brother for dead, whom did they end up with but their uh, persecuted brother now in a position of uh, power in Egypt who was able to show mercy on them and give them food and provision. God showed mercy to the people of Israel when they lived in the land of Egypt and were under the oppression of slavery and brought them free into the promised land. God showed justice or mercy even to the city of Nineveh who was not originally part of the kingdom of Israel, but was a wicked and cruel city. And God had had called out a punishment, a day of judgment for Nineveh, and sent the prophet Jonah to describe that to him. But God showed mercy to Nineveh when he relented once they repented and turned to him. Yet by the times of the prophet Micah, God's people in Jerusalem, God's own people had allowed economic realities to divide families. The rich and the poor experienced increasing distance from one another. Corrupt judges didn't execute justice, but favored the wealthy and the powerful. And religious activity flourished, but its depth was minimal. When faced with their separation from God, Israel's people asked the prophet Micah, with what shall we come before the Lord and bow down before him? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? But Micah delivered God's word to this people and said, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, not only does God value mercy, he desires his people to live out mercy even more than he wants them to live out the religious rituals that he had laid out for them. A similar message was given to the northern king through the prophet Hosea and was referred to twice by Jesus in in the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus exhorted his critics to learn what this means when the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, Jesus was God's provision of mercy for all humanity. Jesus perfectly embodied God's mercy in the incarnation when he took on a human body and came to live on this earth. There was no contradiction in him between mercy and justice. He lived out both. Mercy is love in action, and God's mercy was shown and made tangible in five different ways. The first is that God sees. God looked on earth, and even despite the blessings that he had given to people throughout history, when he looked, he found none righteous. None were able to enter his presence, not even one. And he looked down, and he saw brokenness, brokenness among his people. 
and God felt. God saw this brokenness, and God so loved the world that he gave the gift of his son, Jesus. And when Jesus came down and lived on earth, lived as one of us, God knows. He knows our experience. When God took on that body and became Jesus in our world, he became proximate to our experience. Our pain becomes his pain. Our, our grief becomes his grief. And our joy becomes his joy. He was in every way made like us so that he even knew the experience of rejection, the pain of loneliness and isolation. But that's not all. The Bible says the wages of sin are death, and so death was what was coming down the pike for humans. But mercy is love in action, and God acts. For our benefit, Jesus chose to go to the cross and take upon himself the death that we deserved for our recklessness and waywardness and rebellion. So, so that we could be connected with God and reconciled with him, not only for now, but for eternity. Jesus' gift of himself opened up this path, but even as he was fulfilling God's justice, he spoke words of mercy from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so for all who call Jesus their Savior, God sends the Holy Spirit to live within each one of us, demonstrating God's final act of mercy that God embraces. He embraces those who used to be far from him, now as members of his own family, of shares in his spirit. And Jesus calls us brothers and sisters and friends. So the presence of mercy in our lives shows that we belong to God through Jesus and we're moving in concert with the Holy Spirit. God acted first, showing us his mercy and then inviting us to do likewise. Just like wearing that designer purse would have shown everyone the love that my fashion-forward mother had for me. When we put on mercy, it's an outward sign to everyone of the mercy that we have received from our merciful Heavenly Father. Pure righteousness can flow through our regenerated hearts and be visible to the world through our words and through our actions. Mercy is like a muscle. The more we use it, the stronger it gets. And the stronger it gets, the more it can carry. The more we practice mercy, the more mercy will naturally flow from us. We're called to be merciful, but this beatitude tells us it'll bring happiness. But if we look at others of Jesus' teachings, we'll see that he also gives some warnings about failures to be merciful in both our actions and our inactions. The parable of the Good Samaritan is thematically similar to the messages of I desire mercy and not sacrifice from Micah and Hosea. Jesus tells the story in response to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So first, one religious leader and then another religious leader walks on the road past this man who has been beaten and left for dead, doing nothing, showing no mercy. But then a traveler from Samaria walks by, and that traveler sees this man in his condition. He feels compassion, and he knows what it's like to travel along this road alone, far from the people who could help you if you ever needed it. 
And then the traveler, the Samaritan, acts. He acts to help the man, and he embraces this man, taking upon himself the cost of helping the man, as well as making sure that he is okay, just like he was one of his own family. Jesus concludes this parable by asking, which of these three men was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who had mercy on him. Jesus replies, go and do likewise. In another parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus gives a thinly veiled warning about those who don't understand the value of God's gift of mercy. Told in response to Peter's question about how often forgiveness is needed, Jesus' answer obliterates all who would try to quantify mercy. In this story, a king summons his official to settle up accounts. And this official owes more than 10 lifetimes worth of earnings back to the king. It is a debt that he could never, ever repay. But the king and the man and the time asks for more time. Give me more time and I will pay it off. Well, that's something that he can't do. He can't even do it in 10 lifetimes. And so the king, in his wisdom and mercy, forgives the entire debt. However, this official doesn't realize the value of that gift that he's just been given. For as soon as he is outside of the presence of the king, he turns around and cruelly assaults another member of the town, demanding that that man pay back all that is owed to him, even though it's just a small sum of money. He won't listen to any plea for mercy from that man and instead has him thrown in prison. Once the king heard about this official's treatment of his fellow citizens, he rebuked him, saying, You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the king turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed, which was something he could never do. Some have read our beatitude today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As if it's an if-then statement. If I show mercy, then God will show mercy to me. But that's not the way it works. Even in this parable that we just looked at, God acted first. The king forgave first, showing us mercy so that we can know what it is and then show it to others. Growing in mercy, it's a progressive work of our life in Christ. The more we show mercy, the more deeply we understand God's mercy and his heart. Because if God is merciful to me, I can now be merciful to you, helping me to see the Imago Dei, that portion of God that is within you. And the more I see that, the more I can understand, I can understand the complexity and the fullness of God. We become united together through showing mercy to one another, and as we do that, God's kingdom is built more strongly here on earth. In Matthew 23, Jesus reinforced his teaching on the most important matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, justice and mercy are at the foundation of God's kingdom. Just as Jesus did, we live in a merciless world. There are people in our world who will pocket a dishonest prophet. There are people here who will say one thing and do another. And there are many here who hold out false hope in the name of empty substitutes for God. But God's power, 
His power to create a new community, a new kingdom is found in his mercy. For we all share a common identity as God's creation, and we stand on level ground on the foot of the cross. We are all loved by our creator, and he longs for us to live lives of love, love for him, love for others. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes about the unity in Christ to be found between the Jews and the Gentiles, who at that point were having a hard time coming together in their common faith in Christ. And Paul writes, his purpose, God's purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those of you who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Emmanuel Katangole an African priest whose father was Tutsi and whose mother was Hutu tells a story from the Rwandan genocide. In some towns, Christians killed other Christians in the very same place where they held Easter worship together less than a week before. As ethnic and political tensions increased in the early 1990s, Rohango Parish Church which was led by a Polish priest, Father Stanislaus, welcomed an ethnically diverse group of Christians for Bible study and prayer. The church's message was simple. Take faith seriously and stay united. When the Hutu militia encouraged this European priest to leave that this wasn't his battle, he refused, saying, these are my people. Even as violence increased, this community valued their ties together as Christians even more than their ethnic identities. They were able to shelter hundreds of Tutsis there in their church without a loss of a single life. One of those who sought refuge there years later wrote to his fellow countrymen, reflecting on this time and saying, we need healing from the burden of our history. The view of our identities is limited it's not enough to see ourselves as Tutsi. It is not even enough to see ourselves as Rwandan. We must see ourselves as children of God. Without this truth, our identities can be a burden. We can't heal by trying to forget our past or suppress the injustices that have occurred. In this merciless world, the American church has been bent by the worldliness in which we have been planted. Far too often, the church has insulated ourselves against the pain of others. From within our own realm of blessing, we have not exposed our hearts to the struggles of those immediately around us. Brian Stevenson, who is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, says to Christians, when we allow ourselves to be shielded and disconnected from those who are vulnerable and disfavored, we lose our effectiveness. But proximity is a pathway through which we learn the kinds of things we need to know to make healthier communities. Too often we look at a person and we look at them and we see what they lack and not who they were created to be. While it's good to serve in a city with a heart filled with mercy, we need a larger focus that causes us to ask, 
what is the issue? What is the cause behind this circumstance that now creates the need that I'm volunteering to meet? What is that underlying cause in the first place? When you look at an intimidating man on the corner of a street as you're passing by, can you look at him and see that little boy that used to love to run and play only decades earlier? What happened? What is his story? How did he get from here to there? Or what about that disheveled woman that was sitting in the lobby on Friday, living out of her car and fleeing an abusive relationship? How does she know Micah 6-8 better than I do? Why did her brother get shot? And, and how, even despite her crumbling circumstances, she able to hold on to her faith? There are stories behind what we see, and in mercy, we need to open ourselves up to hear and learn those stories. We need to own up to our own motives in showing mercy. God is not interested in a transactional mercy, one in which we stay insular, one that doesn't change our hearts or require our investments. We can't preserve our power or our prestige or our privilege when we're exercising mercy. God is looking for a transformational mercy, one that is rooted in recognizing and honoring the innate worth of another person, one that brings us into shared community and allows the flourishing of the other person so that their dignity and joy can grow into all that God created them to be. We need to journey together towards Jesus, and it is in his wounds that we find healing and unity. Mercy is in large part an essential character of God. And when we receive the mercy that he offers us, however imperfectly we may understand it at first, God calls us to pass it along, to show mercy continually, mercy in our speaking, mercy in our actions, mercy in how we fill our calendars, and mercy in how we spend our money, mercy to our coworkers and to our classmates, mercy to those we know well and mercy to those we just met, Mercy when we feel weak, and mercy when we feel like whatever we have to give will not make any difference. We are to be merciful. Seeing, feeling, and knowing another circumstance, acting for their good, and then embracing them as a fellow child of God, only then can we fully understand and value the mercy that God has for us. As we conclude, I invite you to take a moment, either later in the service or later today, and ask God how he is calling you to specifically show mercy this week. After our first song of response, uh, our first song of response and offering after the prayer will be an instrumental piece, um, allowing a little bit of time of reflection. Uh, It's a piece written by a German composer, and it's entitled Mercy, and it was written this last fall in response to the violence in America that he saw from across the ocean, violence, some of which happened in our own community. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. May we live up to our calling to be God's beloved and blessed community. Let's pray. Merciful God, you are the father of every person and culture under heaven, and we praise you for making us all unique. We pray for the gift of faith who, for those who have not yet received your mercy. Pray that you would pour your mercy out on them, even as they begin to understand 
Strengthen our hearts, Lord, to be merciful and lead us to those who need to experience Christian love. Sustain us, Lord, as we battle against forces that seek to divide us and enable us to stay focused on you. For your kingdom is one of unity. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, may we be merciful so that you alone receive the glory both now and forever. Amen.